morning. Any of you ever seen that video before? I love that video. Because God is always working through other people in your life and bringing things to happen that are going to impact your life. And then he's working through you to impact others. And so we need to be always aware of that. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Brian introduced me, and uh, it's always an honor to be here. You guys are one of our great network churches in Blue River, Kansas City. You've hosted so many things for us, pastors, luncheons, revitalization cohorts, semi-annual meetings, anything we've ever needed. You all have always been generous with your building, and so we appreciate that and the partner that you are. Brian is a good friend. We met, like he said, about eight years ago when I came here, and he had just come here, I believe, not long before that. And uh, you all have a great story here, and it's a great work, and we appreciate having you as a partner church. Um, so much I'd like to say, but I want to jump into the message. It's uh, kind of a long message. Is that, is that what you're supposed to say at the beginning of the sermon? No. <laughs> uh, there's a fine line between a hostage crisis and a sermon that's too long is what I've heard. So we'll try not to, uh, to uh, not honor your time. We'll try to do that. But anyway, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 through 10, and I will bring that video back in a little later in the message and kind of, uh, you'll see why I had you, had you watch that. But First Timothy 6, 6 to 10, and then leave your Bibles open after we read this because we're going to look at verses 17 and 18 a little later in the message. First Timothy 6, 6 to 10. And um, y'all hear me okay? Okay. And so... Um, you know, one of the things that we rarely talk about in church, and it's nobody's fault, it's just, but we don't, and that is the believer and the relationship to wealth or money. And it's something that I, I was a pastor for 28 years, and, and I, I know that I always felt a little reluctant, a little reticent to do that because, you know, it seems like I'm, you know, wanting people to, you know, I'm asking for something, I'm being self-serving, and that, that's never the case. The Word of God addresses people say that Jesus talked about wealth more than he he talked about hell, uh, and uh, that's probably true, uh, because he knew that's the world we live in, and that's something we deal with every day. It's something we have an opportunity to, to um, do faithfully, or it's something that we're going to do very poorly. And so um, I'm going to put your mind at ease. I think there's some misconceptions that people have about wealth. We read the Bible, and we get some wrong ideas. And so let's look at the passage. Remember to keep your Bibles open, but uh, let me read beginning in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. There's that word again. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. We have this really uncomfortable relationship with wealth and money as believers. Wouldn't you say at times we, we kind of feel guilty because we live in this incredibly prosperous country, and if you've ever traveled anywhere outside of the United States, you recognize quickly 
that none of the rest of the world lives at the level of prosperity and affluence that we do. And so we feel a little guilty. And then when we have the surpluses that we do at times, and I know we all live a lot of times, there's too much month at the end of the money, as we say, and, and we feel tight and we wish we had a little more. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying when we look at how we live and the standard of living we have, it, the rest of the world doesn't even come close. And, and so we have, this, we have this uncomfortable relationship with money uh, so much so that we're, we're, it's almost like we feel guilty if we are prosperous. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, uh, has this section about helping us understand our relationship to wealth and a proper relationship. And he, he asks the question in the book, he says, is it more spiritual to be rich or is it more spiritual to be poor? And if you ask 100 Christ, Christians that question, and I, and I would say this is pretty true consistently, I would say 90% or more will say, it's more spiritual to be poor. And there are verses who would, that would lead us to, to maybe think that, but the Bible does have some things to say about the poor. It does, doesn't it? We're to be careful how we treat the poor. Uh, the Bible says that to oppress the poor is to insult his creator. Jesus says, when you've done it under the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto who? me. James says that we are to show no partiality. If a rich man comes into your service, we're not supposed to give him favored treatment and say, well, you come on up here and sit in this really good seat, and the poor guy comes in, put him somewhere, you know, in the back out of the way. So the Bible is very clear that we are to treat the poor with dignity and respect and honor because they are created by the Heavenly Father. We're all human beings. We all put our pants on one leg at a time, if you will, you know, nobody's special. Nobody's, God is not the respecter of any person, we're told in Galatians. And so we are to be careful how we treat the poor. But the Bible indicates that there are unique challenges that come to us, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, or somewhere in between. And the rich person here is at least warned uh, to be careful that they're not uh, caught up in a trap, that they're not just pursuing wealth as their sole ambition in life, that they have this inordinate love of money. They're warned about that in a passage a little bit. You know, it's going to say, don't be conceited. You know, don't depend upon your wealth. There, there, are, there are temptations that come with having wealth. There are temptations that come with not having wealth. Because if you don't have wealth, you can be guilty of coveting, of always wanting what someone else has, of being, you know, well, well that's not fair, having a victim mentality. If, if you don't have it, you know, it's like the proverb says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. For in my riches, I might forget you, you know, because I don't, you know, you, you lose that sense of I need the Lord every day. And he said, and give me neither poverty where I might steal and dishonor my maker. But give me only that which I need for the day. And Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, right? And so we understand there's this, there's this, relationship we have with wealth, it's a little bit uncomfortable. I remember John Wesley, when he began preaching, he said, I noticed that when I preach the biblical principles of what it means to be a believer, a disciple, people usually end up over the course of their life getting wealthy. You know, principles like honesty, decency, hard work, sacrifice, frugality, right? And when people do that, over a course of a life, they generally end up 
fairly wealthy. He said, it's a conundrum. It's a catch-22 we're in because, you know, there's the dangers of wealth, but if you preach what the Bible says, a believer does, believers generally become wealthy over a lifetime. Not quick, you know, but over a lifetime. And so he said, I struggle with this. And so anyway, we, you know, if you ask a hundred people, is it more spiritual to be rich or more spiritual to be poor, about 90% of them will say it's more spiritual to be poor. But the Bible never, ever teaches that. It's not what's in the bank account that makes one spiritual or not spiritual. It's what's in the heart. And Jesus is very clear about that, that sin originates in the heart. And so it's not more spiritual to be rich. It's not more spiritual to be poor. It's more spiritual to be content regardless of whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in between. Did you see what the passage said there? Verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we will be content. Right? And godliness actually is a mean of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. You see, we are to be content with what we have, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're somewhere in between. At any station in life, we can be content. Free from worry, distress, lust, covetousness. That's what, that's what content means. It means I'm, I'm not uptight about what I don't have. And so it's not more spiritual to be rich or poor. It's more spiritual to be content with what you have. That doesn't mean you don't have a financial plan to improve yourself, to increase your income, to improve your skill level or your education level that you might earn more. No, it's certainly not saying that. But it's saying that at any point in life you are, if we've got food and clothing, if we've got the basics, we can be happy. We can be content. With that, we will be content. Because life is too short to live in, in continual frustration, continual lust, continual covetousness, continual, oh, I wish I had, continual victim mode. It's too short. And, and frankly, everyone, usually at the beginning of their life, throughout their, their you know, childbearing years and everything, I remember it was always... It was always tight around the house. There never was extra money. It was always like, okay, the, what do they need now? What kind of pads do they need? What kind of stuff for school? What about the senior graduation fees? And then it was college. Then it was wedding. Then it went, my wife went back to college. Then my son went to college. It's just like, where does it all go? I mean, we, we all know. But, but through that, we need to have a sense of contentment. That's what's more spiritual, to have that sense. You know, if you travel outside this country, you suddenly realize how well off we are as Americans. That the poorest American is more affluent than the rich person almost in a third world country. I mean, that's why I'm an advocate of mission trips for young people and churches to go on uh, in, uh, in, in overseas type mission trips. Because... You go over there and you suddenly see something that you maybe had read about, but you never, you just can't fathom the level of poverty in these third world countries. Uh, my kids have been to the middle of Mexico, and I've been with them, middle of Mexico, Puerto Rico, El Salvador, and these countries, these people are literally just living hand to mouth every day, the big majority of them. I mean, there's always the few elite in the government that have, you know, their little place, their niche, and they're making it good. But in those kind of countries, just almost everyone is in the same boat. They're just working every day for their daily bread. That's really the case. You know, there's no sense of I'm going to retire at 60. 
or 65 and buy my lake home and kick back. That's not even on their radar. It just doesn't happen in those countries. And my kids, they come back from those trips. And so there's always the good that you do on those trips for the kingdom and the lifelong friendships you make, but you come back and there's the change that the Lord brings about in your heart by seeing that and experiencing that and that they were so happy and they had nothing and they were just happy in Jesus. They were content. And my kids would come back and they go, Dad, I'm so sorry. I've been so ungrateful for everything I've had. I, you know, I complain because I didn't have the, you know, upper level tennis shoe or jean. You know, you know, you made me get the kind of jeans I could get at Sears or something, you know. <laughs> and, you know, they felt like they were, it was first world problems, right? That's, that's why we say that phrase, first world problems. And uh, on a preacher's salary, you don't get to buy your clothes at Abercrombie and Fitz or wherever they go now. And, and so, you know, they'd come back and they'd say, Dad, I'm sorry. I've been so ungrateful. That's why I'm an advocate for those kind of things. Paul says in Philippians 4, 11, and 13, Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul is saying that he has been poor. So poor, he didn't have two nickels to rub together. He's saying, you know, I was just, I was destitute. And you just read about what he says there in like 2 Corinthians 11, where he talks about all this, the things he'd been through, you know, without food, without clothing, and shipwrecked, and destitute, and without any provision. Man, he had experienced it all. He said, I've been poor, I've been well supplied, and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, that's the context of that passage. You know, we use, this is the most misquoted passage in the world. You know, we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like, my softball team is going to win the championship. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? We, you know, we can overcome this temptation because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is true. You can. But the application of this verse, the context of this verse, remember, Text without context is a pretext for proof text. And, and this, this passage without context, it, it really gets misused. And if you want to use it correctly, what you need to do is when you're feeling tight, when you're feeling like, hey, I don't, I don't have enough to be generous. I don't have enough to give at my church. I don't have enough to go on that mission trip. I don't have enough to be generous with someone. You can say, What? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context we want to use that passage, isn't it? And so Paul is saying we can live at any socioeconomic level with, with poverty, with riches, and it doesn't have to cause us to be discontent, unhappy, or envious, or covetous of what other people have. So we just need to not worry, be happy. We need to realize that you know, why, why can we be content whether we're rich or poor? Because we're already rich. We're already winners, aren't we, in Christ? I mean, he redeemed us by his own blood. That means that you were lost in sin and death, and God thought you and your soul were so valuable that you know what he gave in exchange for your soul, that you might have eternal life? His only begotten son. That's how valuable you are to God. You're already a winner, regardless of your economic status today. If you're in Christ, you're rich beyond anything you could imagine. And the Bible says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. And if you understand what a will is, are you in anyone's will, by the way? 
Well, you are because the Bible says that God's written you into his will and you're going to inherit everything the Son inherits. And that means all of this new heaven and new earth and all of the, the riches of, of eternity. You're already rich. You're already blessed and loved. And that's why you can be content. It's not more spiritual to be rich or poor. It's more spiritual to be content with what you have at any level, any place in your life. Secondly, it's more spiritual to understand that we own nothing... And we are only managers of what God gives us. God owns it all, right? We've said that over and over. Look at, uh, well, you don't have to look, but Psalms 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who live in it. Paul tells us that all things were created by him and for him that were created, whether things in heaven or things in earth. That's pretty comprehensive. In other words, as soon as I figure out Christianity 101, do not pass go, do not collect $200, I own nothing. I may have bought that motorcycle. I may have bought that boat. I didn't. I bought the motorcycle, but I didn't buy the boat. I may have bought it with money that I earned. I may have bought a house. I may have bought a car for my wife and I. I may have a little bit of money in the bank, but guess what? It's not mine. It's mine to manage, but it's not mine as far as ownership. Do you get that about the things that you own and the things you possess and the wealth that you have? You don't own it. God owns it. It's his. He gave it to you, and he gave it for you to manage for his good, his glory, and the good of the most people possible for the kingdom. That is Christianity 101. You've got to get that. You don't fully grasp what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ if you don't get that he, he not only owns everything you have, he purchased you. He redeemed you. He bought you back from sin and death. And you belong fully to him. Everything that you have. You see, there's all these parables throughout the New Testament that Jesus tells. And so many of them are about, you know, people managing things for a, for a master or a person who owns the estate. And the most famous of, of those, of course, is Matthew chapter 25, where he gives um, five talents to one guy, one servant, two talents to another, and one to, one to another. It says he goes off on a long journey, and then he comes back after a long period of time. And he calls those servants in to give an account for what they did, and talents were a portion of wealth. It's, a, it's an amount of money. And so he calls those servants in, and he, and he makes them give an accounting of what they've done with the five and the two and the one. Well, of course, the one with five had doubled it. The one with two had doubled it. The one with one had buried it in the ground. You remember what he said about the one who buried it in the ground? Cast this wicked, lazy servant out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's tough. That's pretty strong, Jesus. Really? Yeah, it's a big deal if you don't get it that you're merely a manager of everything the Lord gives you. And you can go through this whole life, and if you keep either purposely forgetting that or not learning that lesson, someone at some point needs to say, are you really a believer if you don't get that Christianity 101? 
it all belongs to God. Because it makes a huge difference in your decision-making and how you manage that wealth if you think you own it as opposed to whether you own it or God owns it, right? It makes a massive difference. We are to be those who manage that which God gives us. And to forfeit our responsibility of managing the gifts and the wealth that God has given us is a serious thing to God. I mean, look what he said to the servant. Throw him out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This wicked, lazy, wicked, lazy servant. That's harsh, but that's perfect justice from the standpoint of God if we don't get that we belong to him and that everything we own belongs to him. Dallas Willard challenges us to think about what would happen if, if every Christian tomorrow just gave away all of their wealth? Because here's, here's why I think most people think that it's more spiritual to be poor than rich, is you have parables like um, the rich man, the, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. You remember that story? This, this rich young ruler comes and says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him an answer. Oh, I've done everything. I've kept every single commandment. Well, nobody keeps every single commandment, right? All of sin and come short of the glory of God. And he'd been really honest with himself. He would know that there were some areas that he wasn't getting. And Jesus knows exactly what that area is. And so he said, okay, go sell all that you have, then come and follow me. He says, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And said the, the young rich ruler went away very sad. And it grieved Jesus too. Now, we don't know that he didn't get saved later after Pentecost, after the resurrection and the ascension, right? We don't know that. But at this point, he's lost. Because money is his God. Jesus proved that it's his God. But, the, but what we take away from that sometimes is that, okay, so every one of us should give away all of our money. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching that every one of us needs to look at our heart continually throughout our life and make sure that our whole life isn't built around money, but it's built around God, and that the stuff we have is His, and we're managing it for His glory and others' good. And as long as we come back with that answer that, yes, that's, that's what we're doing, and we, we don't need to sell and give away everything we have. That's, the, the lesson here is not that every Christian ought to go sell and give away every they have, every, everything they have and give it to the poor. The lesson is you better know money is your God. But Dallas Willard challenges us to think about what, what would happen if every Christian tomorrow went to the bank, put everything they own on the real, you know, realtor.com, sold their house, sold their cars, gave away all their money, cashed in all of their 401ks, and gave it away. He said that would be disastrous because in the world, wealth has to go somewhere. If you give it away... It's, it's, if every believer did that, then it's going to end up in the hands of unbelievers. It's going to end up, end up in the hands of people in the world who don't care a thing about God, His kingdom, or the gospel. And so it's not going to be used. It's going to be used for selfish and maybe evil purposes in some cases. It's not going to be used for God's glory. Right? He said it would be a disaster. And so... 
the, the, the story is, is, is not trying to teach you to go and sell everything you have, unless, it's your, unless money is your God, and then there's something to be learned from that, and there are people who have done that. I mean, that's the guy who started Habitat for Humanity, that's kind of his story. He became a millionaire by the time he was 30, and he just decided, I'm done with that, so he quit his job. Not even give away everything he had, but he started a benevolent organization that's blessed millions of people with homes. But that's not what this is teaching. He wants the vast majority of us who call ourselves Christ followers to make all we can and to manage that for God's glory and other people's good, good of the kingdom, all right? So it's not more spiritual to be poor. It's not more spiritual to be rich. Finally, it's more spiritual to be generous than to be miserly and selfish. Let's look at that. Verse 17 and through 19 now, if you've got your Bibles open still. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. Here's what he says as he's wrapping up this, uh, talking about believers and wealth. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Did you hear that? That's why he gives us that stuff. He does give it to us to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good, good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, uh, Randy Alcorn writes the book, um, and, and in the book, uh, he's, he's a, it's called The Treasure Principle. Store up for yourselves not treasures on earth where wrath and must, uh, uh, moth and rust thus corrupt and where thieves break in a seal, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And that's what this is saying. Did you see that? That's what he's saying there in... Uh, He's saying, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's, he's talking about exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, where what we do with our wealth as we bless other people, as we give, as we're generous, we're impacting eternity with that. People's lives are being saved as we give to Christian ministries. As you support your church and more people hear the gospel, we're impacting eternity. And that is your spiritual legacy. And so, you know, like Randy Alcorn says, just imagine your life is this infinitely long line because you're going to live forever somewhere, right? In heaven or in hell. And I hope in heaven, I hope you know the Lord Jesus. But this, let's say you're picturing your life as this infinitely long horizontal line. Now, take a magic marker and put a dot on that line. That's your life here on earth. So as Randy Alcorn says, don't live for the dot live for the line. You see, we need to think about our spiritual legacy. We need to think about whether or not in heaven, eternity, Jesus is going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into thy, the joy of thy rest. We need to think about that. We, we are all through how we live and the decisions we make, whether we're being generous or not, generous or not, we are building our spiritual legacy for eternity. But the main reason why it's not more spiritual to be poor is because to be generous, guess what? Think about this just from a very practical standpoint. 
it's not more spiritual to be poor and in total deprivation because to be generous, you have to have something to give. Don't overlook that simple fact. You have to have something to give. Generosity is a primary characteristic of the faithful, of believers. We're never more like God than when we are giving. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only beloved son. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. It is more blessed to give than to... How do you give if you don't have anything to give? If every Christian you know, just divested themselves of all their wealth and material possessions tomorrow... How could you be generous? You have to have money. You have to have things to be generous in ways that, that, that bless. Now, there are other ways you can bless people, obviously, encouragement and those kind of things, but that's, that's not what this is talking about. He's talking about blessing people, being generous with them. When Paul says... But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a, is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, many sorrows. Think about the video. A young couple, they're trying to get out of debt so they can adopt they meet this couple from church who have adopted five and instead of adopting more, they want to help other couples who want to adopt. And they've worked hard. They've got themselves out of debt. They've got themselves in a position where they can be generous and a blessing to others. And so they come and they pay off the last 10000 of this young couple's debt so they can adopt sooner than later. And what they realize after going through the whole adoption process is that when those people wrote that check, it was probably the conception date of the little girl that they got to adopt. That's a pretty amazing story. And what I, what I take away from that story is that you and I watch that, and I know your heart. I, people's heart, they want, you want to be generous, right? You, you, if you could be that couple who wrote the $10,000 check, you'd love to be that couple, wouldn't you? Not because you had the money to give, but because you just got such a blessing out of helping that other couple and seeing them adopt earlier than they'd planned on it. We know it's more blessed to give than to receive. But so many of us, because of the difficulties of life and different things, we find ourselves not able to be that generous because we're just living just week to week, check to check, too much month at the end of the money, right? And when I read this passage about how people come to ruin and destruction, after watching people over a lifetime, I, I, there's a lot of ways that happens, but, well, there's a few, but the two main ones that I see, how, how people, for the love of money, they plunge themselves in all kinds of sorrow and destruction. The first one would be get rich quick schemes. 
and you're going to be approached by one and sooner or later if you haven't already. Like the video said, this sounds like a multi-level marketing scheme. Somebody wanted to get you into, the, you know, they're going to sell you a product that's three times over the price and, and then get you to sell the product to someone else who sells it to someone else. So there are these get-rich-quick schemes. If you just invest in this, somebody will come to you. You know, this is the, the hot new thing, you know, cryptocurrency or whatever it is. You're going to make a gazillion dollars if you do this. Well, 99% of the time, get-rich schemes end in poverty. They end in ruin. They just don't work. The Bible warns us about that, that, that inordinate, that's in that inordinate desire for money, we think, you know, without work, without sacrifice, without time, that we're going to just hit it, hit it rich quick. That's one way. But the second way that I see people mismanage wealth and end up in financial ruin or destruction or distress is debt, right? Debt is using someone else's money to get something you want or need. And the price you pay for using someone else's money is called the interest rate, right? Now, what I would say is there's no good debt. There's just bad debt and worse debt, right? So uh, bad debt, uh, bad debt would be something like uh, school loans, home loan. You know, most of us can't afford a home but we need it, and so we pay the bank, you know, 4 or 5 percent. It was 13 percent back in about 1988, so that interest rate can fluctuate what a bank charges you to use their money, but there are things like that. Uh, starting a business is a, is a better kind of debt. It's not good. I mean, no debt's good because you're pay paying someone else to use their money, right? Um, churches, I mean, our, our church two or three times took on debt, but we were always good at paying it off, and uh, most bankers will tell you churches are a very good risk. They always pay off their debts. So there's, there's not great debt. There's just debt and worse debt. And what's the worst debt? Debt would be like, bad debt would be like credit card debt, luxury items we buy, debt to supplement a higher standard of living, you know, buying things we really can't afford, to impress people who really don't care, right? We all heard that saying. So there's worse debt. And, and that's what I see more people get into trouble with is by getting into debt and then, you know, well, uh, another kind of bad debt would be like payday loans. That would be the worst kind of debt. I mean, that, that's punitive. Those places should be put out of business yesterday. Uh, they're just preying on people. I mean, it's just like organized crime legalized for them to get the kind of interest rates they do for those places. So that's terrible debt. Someone asked uh, Albert Einstein, the great physicist, one time, you know, uh, what is the greatest force in the universe? And he was in this forum of all these smart college kids somewhere. And some of them said, oh, a quasar, sun. Um, black hole and uh, he said no that's not the most powerful force in the universe the most powerful force in the universe is compound in interest right 
See, interest either works for you or against you. If you're in debt, if you borrow money, you're paying someone else to use their money. They're making money off of you. In other words, you're going to pay, if you buy a, if you buy a car at 10% interest, you're going to, if the, if the purchase price of the car is $20,000, you are probably going to pay twenty-five dollars to $28,000 for the car because you've used someone else's money to get that. You see how that works? Or if you have a surplus and then you give somebody your money to use, like you put it in a 401k or a stock market, now they're using your money to do business and paying you to use your money, and now you're making money. So it's, it's, there's a reason why they call it the debt snowball because compounding interest is just every time it makes a round, it gets, it, it gets uh, a lot bigger, Right? And so that's what people need to understand about debt. What need people need to understand about their budgets, and, and, and I hope I don't quit preaching and go to meddling, but I want to help you with this. I, I would like for every one of you to be out of debt, in the surplus, in the black, where you're able to be like the couple who could write the $10,000 check. So in case you're questioning my motives or why I'm talking about that, that's why. I want every one of you to be in that position. But when we look at our budgets, and I've, you know, I'm standing here as a, the biggest sinner in the bunch of the mistakes I've made throughout the years I'm help, trying to help you not to make is, it's kind of like what Solomon said. He says, we need to catch the little foxes, for the little foxes are ruining the vineyard while it is in bloom. And that has a great application to our budgets. And here's what I mean by that. It's not usually the big things that we do that hurt us. Buying a house, it's appreciating, you know, look at what they've done lately, I mean, you're making up that. You're probably covering the cost of financing the house with the appreciation. Okay, so that's why it's better debt. But y'all, some of you probably have some bad debt. And whether it's on a credit card or whatever, or you have some bad spending practices. And, and it's not usually the big things that you do that mess up your budget. It's the everyday little stuff that we do, right? Little stuff like premium cable. Okay, I'm, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm saying things that we've all done at some point. Gym memberships, $5 coffees, eating out too many times a month, magazine subscriptions we never read, tanning and salon fees, extended warnings, timeshares, and impulse buying. Those are the kind of things that people do to wreck their budget on. It's the little foxes that are spoiling, that are eating the grapes, right, that are spoiling the vineyard. It's all the little things that add up. And so what we, I would just encourage you to do is to, to look at, you, you know, your budget. A budget, you know, what, look at your, look at your uh, debit card statement. Look at your credit card statement. Look, if you have a checkbook, look at what you've been writing. And it, it, you'll be surprised. Oh, man, I spent $300 on Fufu coffee. And I just told them I couldn't help support the mission trip at church, you know. I mean, really, folks, I'm just, I, I, I know, I, I'm one of, I've done this before, but I'm just saying it's the little foxes that wreck our budgets. And we say, oh, we just don't have enough to be generous. We don't have enough to save. We don't have enough to pay off. Yeah, we, we could, but we have to make some sacrifices, right? It's not that most people don't have enough money. It's most people don't have enough self-control, willpower to say no to some of those things. I'm not saying deprive yourself all the time, never ever have a Starbucks again or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to look at it 
and realize because a budget, you need to make a budget, and a budget is telling your money where it's going to go. So if you said, okay, I'm going to allow myself to have two fufu coffees a week in the month and not seven, all right? There's huge savings there. You can add it up. And I'm going to allow myself to do this. I'm going to, we're, going to eat out, we're going to eat out five times a month instead of 12 or whatever you decide to do. I'm just giving you examples. And you can add up what you're going to save. You see where I'm going with that? We have to, we have to, budgets are just ways of telling our money what to do so we don't end up serving money and it's serving our needs, it's serving our purposes for the glory of God rather than us serving it and being, because, you know, the debtor is slave to the lender. And then I would challenge you to get a plan for getting out of debt. And I'm going to close with this. I don't know how we are in time. But there's a simple plan for getting out of debt. I'm pretty sure Brian probably knows it. I know it. There's probably people sitting in this congregation that know it and have done it. And it's called the debt snowball. And if you are, you, you could ask me. You could get my email address. I'll sit down with you. You don't have to tell me anything about your particulars, your money, how much you make, what you do. I don't, I don't need to see any of that. I just need to say, here's, how, here's the process. You plug in the numbers at home. I don't need to see the numbers. And within two years, most people can get out of debt. And then when they're out of debt, then they can start throwing all the money they were paying on the, the Lowe's card and the credit card and the debit card and the this card and the that debt. You can throw all that at the house, and within about another five years, you'll have your house paid off. And now you're sitting in the position where you can write the $10,000 check for the couple who wants to adopt, or whatever it is. The five kids that can't afford to go to camp or mission trip, you can just write the check and say, here, scholarship them. That's where I want you to be. Because I think in our hearts, we all want to be that person. But we have to decide to be that person. We have to decide that everything we have belongs to God. It's not more spiritual to be rich. It's not more spiritual to be poor. It's more spiritual to be content, to manage everything we have for God, and to be generous. Amen. Bow with me for a moment as we pray. Father, thank you for the day and for the opportunity to hear your word. And, and Lord, I pray that people have uh, taken the message uh, to heart as I have intended it to help them to become better stewards, managers of what you've given them. For it is a major responsibility to step up and say, Lord, you've given me some talents and abilities and some resources, and I, I haven't been managing those to the best of my ability for you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review that part of my life because I want to be a good manager. I want to hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear you say, cast the wicked and lazy servant out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to hear that. Lord, I want to be the person who can write the check, the person who can be generous. And I think every one of these folks do too. I just pray, first of all, they understand that you've purchased them with your own blood, that you valued each of them so much that you sent your one and only son to die on the cross for them, to buy them back from sin and death, to redeem them to yourself. And you own us, Lord, but you're the one we want to belong to. For you are a good master, a good savior. You love us. You have our best interest in mind. You came that we might have life, that we might have it more abundantly. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to bless each of them today to be good stewards, to be good managers of everything, and to be content where they are, but 
they can have, you know, we, you want us to have plans to better ourselves. But all along the way, wherever we are, rich, poor, somewhere in between, just to be content in you, knowing that we are already rich in Christ. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ of all that eternity has for us. Thank you, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.